please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be here this week and again next week before we move into our new series, uh, tentatively titled um, Jesus According to the, Go- uh, According to the Bible, um, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are a people gathered this morning. We are a people in great need. We are in need of revelation from the outside, and we are in need of transformation on the inside. So, Father, may your word and spirit have their way with us. Indeed, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Why are you here this morning? Why did you set your alarm last night? Get up, hopefully, immediately when it went off this morning. You got dressed, you ate breakfast. And you got in a car, most likely, and drove here. Why are you here? Why are we here? Well, a fundamental, a central, a core answer would be, of course, we are here to worship the living and true God. As I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think of somewhat of a modern uh, chorus that many churches sing. So here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say you're my God, and you're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. That's a great gathering of words there. Here I am to worship. Worship is our response to the word of God declared and the work of God demonstrated. And we're going to see the church at worship Today, as we continue in our series, What in the World is the Church? from Acts 2. Now, Acts, as we've been saying, is a bridge between the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, the letters to the churches. And it's not an exhaustive record of everything that that took place, but it's a selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach, as Luke makes clear in the first verse. A good title that helps to capture what's going on in this book is this. The Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by Him through the Apostles. For it brings together both the divine and the human element of Acts. Acts is a great place to stop and pause and remember by its very name that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. What God does really is greater than what we do or could ever do. Christianity is God-centered. Christianity is not about being a better you or having your best life now. Christianity is the revelation of salvation in Jesus Christ and responses to that, the response of repentance and faith. We see in Acts chapter 2 the event of Pentecost that 
that um, uh, 40 days after Jesus' ascension, after the disciples had uh, stayed and waited and prayed, it was something took place on the day of Pentecost, that Jewish festival. And we see all that in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. And then the sermon, Peter's sermon. Amazingly, Peter, who earlier had who had denied Jesus, is now confessing Jesus in this wonderful sermon, this explanation of the events of Pentecost from verses 4 to 36. And then beginning in 37, we see the effect of this sermon, the effect of the coming of the Spirit. And what was the effect of Peter's sermon? Well, we see that when the Word of God and the Spirit of God are at work, they produce a conviction of sin, a confession of faith, and in so doing, they work together to build a congregation of believers. In other words, they, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, build the church. And guess how the church is built today as well? Through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Well, was the church born at Pentecost? Does the church begin then? Well, in a word, no. Because God has had His people way on back from before then. But what happened at Pentecost is that God's people become the Spirit-filled body of Christ. It's the birth of a new family defined no longer by natural birth, but rather by supernatural birth, by adoption. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 provides a summary account of the activities and attitudes of the Jerusalem church following Pentecost. Those of you that may be familiar with Acts know that there is high drama. I mean, there's people that drop dead right on the spot. There's miracles, there's stonings, there's all kinds of stuff taking place, but there's also the mundane daily life, the regular routine, and that's what we see a description here of the church's life where the work of the Spirit is evident. Join with me as I read verses 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Right off the bat in verse 42, we see four activities. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And these verses that follow uh, provide this fourfold description of the church as a learning community, a loving community, a worshiping community, and a witnessing community. Well, thus far we've seen the church described as a school with teaching and learning. There's theological depth to the church. And then we've seen the church described as a family, a fellowship, a common shared life with close relationships. 
Today, we're going to look at the third evidence Luke mentions of the presence of the Holy Spirit, that being devotion to worship. And so we'll see the church described as, guess what? A church. We began in the classroom. From there, we entered the family room. And now we're moving into the sanctuary. Once again, just like we've seen for the past two weeks, we see devotion. Devotion, we've seen to the teaching of the apostles. We've seen devotion to the fellowship. And now we're going to see devotion to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Devotion, continuously, persistently, perseverance. It's that sense of attachment like glue. And it's more than just an action. It's an attitude of devotion. It starts in the heart And it's worked out to the head and to the hands. Devotion. Earlier, we saw the apostles in chapter 1, verse 14, devoted to to prayer. And here we will see them devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Before we move on, it's good to stop and say, what am I devoted to? What What am I stuck like glued to? Now, there's a, there's a good thing that a husband is devoted to his wife and a wife devoted to her husband and children devoted to parents and parents to children and friends devoted to each other. That is great. But we're talking here about our misguided devotions, our reputation, our influence, our finances, our status, our leisure, our recreation. What are you devoted to? Ask somebody else, hey, when you see my life, what would you say I am devoted to? It's a good question to ask ourselves and ask the Lord. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Notice the breaking of bread, most likely but not exclusively. This is a reference to the Lord's Supper primarily because it's not just breaking of bread, it's the breaking of bread. Whereas Paul would say the Lord's Supper, here Luke is saying the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper. It is communion. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Notice it's not just they devoted themselves to prayer, but the prayers. Most likely a reference to the prayer services or meetings. Again, because of that definite article, the prayers. It expresses the reality of a community that's dependent upon God and that seeks God's direction. That's what the 200 were doing in chapter 1, verse 14. They devoted themselves to prayer, and now over 3,000 people are devoting themselves to the prayers. The breaking of the bread, or the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, two major elements of worship. And that's what we do and other churches do because that's what Scripture defines and describes as worship. And so we see that they devoted themselves to worship. The church is not only a learning community, but a loving community and a worshiping community. Well, wait a minute. I thought that worship was the primary task, function, purpose, calling of the church. Absolutely. At grace and peace, everything leads to worship and and goes from worship. In other words, what we're doing right now is the anchor and the engine of our life. It's the anchor in that it holds us 
fixed to the historic faith once and for all revealed. But it also is an engine that it propels us out in love and service to God and to others. Well, if this is primary function, purpose, calling of the church to worship, why is it third? Why is it listed third? Why wouldn't it be right off the bat, number one? Two reasons. First, because of the content of worship. It's from the apostles' teaching and the context of worship in the fellowship of believers. Did you hear that? It's because of the content and the context of worship. And we'll unfold that in a moment. But let's start with a call. The call to worship. At our deepest level, we were created to worship. As someone had said in a song, I think in the 60s or 70s, you gotta serve somebody, right? And we take that to be scriptural truth because we have on our postcard, what? To be human is to finish it. To worship. That's the statement. To be human is to worship. And then we ask the question, right? Who or what are you worshiping? Everybody worships. We were created to worship. And before the fall, there is pure, undefiled, perfect worship. Relationship between creator and creation. But with the fall, the instinct, the impulse for worship has gone awry. Instead of worshiping the creator, people worship the creation. Brothers and sisters, we are seeing Romans 1 in technicolor today. People are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, they are worshiping the creation. Well, what is worship? The old English word is worship. And from that, we can see that worship is seeing what God is worth and giving God what he is worth. Christian worship is treasuring God. We ponder his worth and then we do something about it. We give him what he's worth. Worship, the revelation of God and the response of his people. That's why our worship service is organized the way it is. It's a dialogue. It's to always remember that God initiates and we respond. God speaks and we listen. And then we are given an opportunity to speak and God listens. It's a holy dialogue, worship. Worship is according to the apostles' teaching, the teaching of Jesus and the teaching that the apostles continued in the letters to the churches. Remember Jesus in the temptation from Satan? What does he say? How does he respond? He responds with the word of God saying, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. To worship is to serve. In John 4, remember Jesus was at the well, Jacob's well and the woman of Samaria and Jesus had a conversation. And in that conversation, Jesus said that the father is seeking true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so really, true worship is seeker-sensitive worship. Because we've got to remember who the seeker is. It's God seeking rebels, finding rebels, changing rebels, and bringing them into his kingdom and his family. 
Absolutely, Grace and Peace is a seeker-sensitive church when we remember that God is the seeker and we want to be sensitive and honoring and glorifying and worshiping and living in accordance to how he has revealed himself to be. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes and says words to the effect that the gospel came in word, in power, in spirit, and with full conviction. And what happened when that took place? Remember what happened? People turned from, God, from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, they turned from worshiping idols to now worshiping the true and living God. Well, what else can we learn about worship the worship of the church from our text. First, the worship of God was done in fellowship with one another. You know, together, we see that. And day by day, attending the temple, what? Together. They are together. But secondly, we see that the worship of the church was well-balanced. And what do I mean? It was both formal and informal, as well as joyful and reverent. It's not blended worship. It's not traditional and contemporary kind of brought together. No, it's not blended worship. It's balanced worship. Let's take a look at worship that is both formal and informal. And, and before we get going, think with me about balance. Both and and not either or. When I used to hear the word balance, and immediately I said compromise. Somebody said, well, you need to be balanced. Oh, you're a compromiser. Well, Think with me for a moment about a road and ditches. It is easy to be in one ditch or the other, isn't it? It's easy. You're just an extremist. You're in one ditch and you can just lay there. You don't have to be on the road facing traffic. You can be in the left ditch or the right ditch instead of being on the road. We're called, as it were, to be balanced. We're called to be on the road. It's dangerous. There's traffic. But God has promised to be with us and walk with us on that road. But think with me, maybe a better illustration is this, a scale or balance. Anybody remember high school chemistry? Kids, do you remember those early uh, scales and balances when you had to put something on one side and the other? Do you remember how hard it was? Like a seesaw, right? You get two people about the same weight and it balances. What happens with, if you get the big guy? What happens? Yeah. It's easy to get out of balance, isn't it? It's hard to be balanced. And what we're going to see here is balanced worship because it is formal. It took place in the temple. Look at verse 46. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They are still part of the institutional organized religion. The, there are elements of the Jude, Jewish religion still there. But they're gathering in the name of Jesus and they're praying and praising God. In other words, there's large group worship. They didn't immediately say, oh, we've come to faith in Jesus and so we're going to abandon the institutional church. We're going to abandon all Jewish practices. No, there was a slow progression away from those things to more things centered upon Jesus. So it's formal. It takes place in the temple. It's 
large group. It's what we're doing today, this morning, gathered together. But it's also informal. And it says, together and breaking bread in their homes. It's informal. It takes place in their homes. In other words, small group worship. Breaking bread here is most likely just to eating meals together. It's important, isn't it, that the church needs both present, corporate worship and community groups. There needs to be more formal, dignified services complemented with the informality of home meetings. Morning and maybe one day evening services of worship on the Lord's Day. And that leads to and leads from individual worship and family worship and small group worship, community group worship. Do you see the balance of formal and informal? It's a both and, it's not an either or. We see it in our text, we see it throughout Acts, and we see it in all of Scripture, the formal and the informal. Well, not only is worship here formal and informal, but it's also joyful as well as reverent. Again, balance. Worship that is joyful. It's clear from the text. Look at verse 46. With glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. They have a reason for joy. It's a joyful celebration of the mighty works of God through Jesus Christ. And we see this predominantly in the small group, the community group worship. But it's also clear that it's not just joyful, it's reverent. Look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all, and fear. God was in their midst, and they knew it. It's large group worship. Both are needed. Did you hear Hebrews 12? Read a few minutes ago. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything else around us will shake and shake and shake, but we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so what's our response? How does the author say? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us be grateful and so let us worship. How? Joyfully, absolutely, but also reverently. Why? Because God is God. He has revealed Himself through Jesus Christ as Savior. God the Father is still judge. He's still ruler, reverence and all. So the worship of the church is according to and guided by the content of the apostles' teaching and it's worship that takes place in the context of the church's fellowship. This is not you and your Bible off alone. No, this is God's people gathered together together. The teaching, the fellowship, the worship. 
a well-balanced ministry of both formal and informal worship that's what? Both joyful and reverent, and they don't contradict each other. They both need to be present. A church where the Spirit of God reigns will not only be a learning church devoted to the teaching of the apostles, not only a loving church devoted to the fellowship, but also a worshiping community. Well, why worship? Why, why are they worshiping? What's their motivation for worship? Well, let's think about it. Look with me at the end of the sermon. Peter says in 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a way to end a sermon. What a way to make people feel good. What a way to build self-esteem. What a way to, um, to promote positive thinking. Absolutely not. What happens? People... 3,000 are convicted of their sin. They recognize their guilt. And in verse 37, what do we say? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's where worship begins with conviction. People confess their faith. They repent. They believe. And what do they receive? Forgiveness. And here on Pentecost, they're receiving the Holy Spirit. The one and the only appropriate response to conviction is confession. It's worship. Joyful. All. Praise. Thanksgiving. Are they worshiping God to do something good to get right with God? Are you kidding? No. They are worshiping praise and thanksgiving because they have been declared right with God. That's the reason. That's the motivation for worship. So why are you here this morning? Why were you here last week? Why, why will you be here next week? Well, I Hopefully it's clear by now. But let's ask again, what's your motive? What's my motive? What's our motive for worship? Let me take you back to something that happened six and a half years ago. At the time, it was big news. And I think today, it's still big news. Some of you may remember that a U.S. Airways jet took off from LaGuardia and headed to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a couple of minutes into its flight. It was at about 3,000 feet. And it ran into a flock of Canada geese. And both engines on the Airbus A320 went out. They couldn't get back to LaGuardia. They couldn't get to a New Jersey airport. And so the captain, Chesley Sullenberger, Sully Sullenberger, you might see him now as an aviation expert, I think on CBS, he had to make some quick decisions. He brought the plane down on the Hudson River, and all 155 people were saved. Afterwards, he gets great respect, honor, gratitude. He was labeled a hero, and in the midst of an abuse of that word, that's probably pretty true of what he did that day. Why? 
was he afforded hero status? Why did the passengers and others almost worship him? Why? Because he did everything he could to save lives. And all passengers lived to tell the story and could rightly say, I owe you my life. Brothers and sisters, they lost their luggage. But they did not lose their lives. Those of you that have received Jesus Christ by faith and are resting in Him alone for salvation, you have already survived an unspeakably horrific crash of an infinitely greater magnitude, the righteous wrath of God that will be poured out on sinners. And you've survived because someone else died in your place to save you from the wrath of God, to save you for a life of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And so here we are to worship God. Because by faith we have been joined to Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus? Our Savior, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. Why are we here? To worship God. We were made to worship God. The call to worship is our highest call and it will be an unending call. We will worship God forever, world without end. And we get started on that here in the church now. Praise God. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've been given this glimpse and a growing understanding of the life of your rescued and redeemed people. Life together, being devoted to your word, being devoted to one another, and being devoted to giving you the glory and honor and praise that you alone deserve. But, oh, Father, how far short we fall. We neglect your word. We distance ourselves at times from one another. And in our worship, our lips may move, but at times our hearts are far from you. Oh Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, renew us to be men and women, boys and girls, who, who are thrilled at being called to worship you, the, trivi- the true and living God. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, enable us this day and all our days to worship you in spirit and in truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are the God's people.